0: After a lifetime of researching the dynamic and enigmatic world of light entertainment, I've decided to ditch my notebook and meet the people who inspire me. What makes them the people they are? How do they feel about the show business landscape in which they find themselves? And in a world where anyone can be a star, is there still a need for performers who have universal appeal? Come with me on a journey of discovery as I get a unique insight into Britain's favourite stars with a little help from my glamorous assistants. Yeah, well, I say glamorous, more like hazardous. And, of course, we'll have a bit of fun along the way.
1: Since joining the BBC in 1971 as a junior producer, Paul Jackson has been responsible for some of TV's finest moments. Working his way up to executive producer of The Two Ronnies during the early 80s, Jackson went on to be a leading light of alternative comedy when he produced the influential Saturday Live, hosted by Ben Elton. In the late 90s, he swapped comedy for light entertainment when he became executive producer on ITV's long-running Saturday night institution, Blind Date, alongside the late, great Scylla Black, until 2003, when the undisputed queen of British television announced her retirement on a live edition of the show. I was interested to know his thoughts on an unparalleled career in television. And after 40 years, why does he remain so in love with the business? Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Paul Jackson. So, firstly, Paul, can I just take you back to 2003? To celebrate 18 years of Blind Day, ITV commissioned a live episode where the late, great Cilla Black announced her retirement live on television. Now, as producer, what was your reaction? Was a long
0: answer, Josh, because, um, first of all, I wasn't the producer. I was the head of department. The producer was a man called Martin Ribman, um, But I was head of entertainment at the time and comedy. Uh, and it wasn't really uh, a celebration of 18 years. The fact is the show was beginning to lose audience. It was a feeling. It was a bit tired. And we were, uh, I was head of entertainment at London Weekend at the time. London Weekend were on a little bit of a warning from the network centre that it was likely not to get renewed or at least not nearly so many episodes. And so rightly or wrongly, and I think on balance, probably wrongly, we decided to try and introduce some big changes into that season. And we did things like date or dump where the, uh, where the chooser could have a second go once he saw the person come around the corner and so on. And I think those things rarely work, you know, formats that are as successful as blind date are successful because of how they are. And you start fiddling with them and actually you lose some of the magic. And Scylla particularly wasn't happy with the changes. But one of the changes we did make was uh, we suddenly thought, why don't we do a live one? You know, she's a consummate broadcaster. She'd have no problem at all handling this live. Um, and so we, <coughs> we chose just after Christmas, which is kind of the middle, you know, the show ran right across the autumn, winter. I think we chose the first one back after Christmas to go live. Um, now, what had happened was, just before Christmas, I'd had lunch with her son, Robert Willis, uh, because he was managing her by now. Bobby had uh, died some time earlier, and Robert looked after her career. And things were clearly declining slowly uh, at ITV. As I say, Blind Date wasn't doing the numbers it had done. Surprise, surprise, had gone, and we'd never really found an alternative vehicle for her. And uh, I discussed with Robert the fact that she should Keep control of her own career because she's a phenomenal artist and you know sadly we lost her last year and, and actually the RTS did a major event for her a few months before she passed away which I was delighted to be involved with. She was a very considerable talent, there's not many people who've built massive popular careers on both ITV and BBC and she's she's one of less than a handful. Um, but things were were slowing down and I wanted her to have uh, been in a position of making her own decisions about her career and not having them forced on her. And I had that conversation with Robert uh, before Christmas. And then they went off to Bahamas, as they always did every Christmas. Um, and what I'd said to Robert was, look, you've got a live show coming up. Uh, you know, I'll leave you with that thought. So when they came back and we got into the studio for the live show, I wasn't prepared for anything at all. I said to Robert, how are you? And how's she? And you had a good day," and so on. And there was no hint of anything going to happen, but as she stepped onto the stage and and made the announcement, because she made it right away at the top of the show, and she just said very simply, I've decided that uh, this will be my last series of uh, Blind Date and I'm taking this live show as an opportunity to tell you. I was absolutely not surprised because we discussed it two months earlier in in The Ivy. Um, And I was very grateful she'd done it, to be honest, because uh, as I say, she was a very very significant television entertainer, and I think for those kind of people to go out when they choose to go out or to leave their biggest vehicle she's done other work since obviously she did do other work but for her to say you know what i think this is the right time to stop i think was the right way to do it and i was very glad that she did that how much my advice had to do with that i've got no idea that's between her and robert but um, i was delighted that she did what she did when she did better to go out on a high you made that decision yourself. Walked down right. on stage to an adoring audience. The audience went berserk. I went down after the show and said, please, you know, you are going to be the last people ever to see Silver Black in a blind date studio because the rest of the series was recorded, obviously. And they went berserk for her. And I think, you know, to see an artist of that caliber stand in the middle of a stage and say, I've decided time's come to rest this, this gig, that's great. Perfect.
1: Now, British showbiz is full of dynasties, one thing that people may not know about you is your late th- father was also a producer, working on early episodes of This Is Your Life and What's My Line. How did it feel following in your father's footsteps? Well,
0: he was. T. Leslie Jackson was my dad, and um, he did really most of What's My Line and, uh, and This Is Your Life. He was a producer of those and directed them, and uh, carried on up to things like Call My Bluff and so on. He was kind of the game show, uh, quiz show guy. Uh, and I grew up around that and really always wanted to to follow him into the business originally I wanted to be a stand-up comic but uh, or an actor but both of those are quite hard Um, and producing is not easy but it's not as hard as being a comic so uh, but I used to go to studios with him when I was a when I was a kid of course it was a great time when I was a young teenager to go to studios because there was Top of the Pops and the Beatles and the Stones and that was the week that was and so on and I was hanging out with all these people around the studios it was rather wonderful Um, but it's not much of a dynasty because it was him. He, he had no connections at all. He came from a very poor uh, family in the tenement slums of Dublin. He was one of the very few Protestants, would you believe, in uh, when the uprising was going on in 1916. He was, they were Christian scientists, which is typical of Dad. Um, and, and I'm the last. My, neither of my daughters have got any interest in this business. So uh, it's been a very short-lived dynasty. But it's spanned across, as it happens, the sort of history, the relevant history of television light entertainment. When when he came back from the war and he was demobbed, he went into Ali Pali as a cable basher and rose up to be an executive producer. And uh, I went in as a runner and ended up as an executive producer and department head. And that's kind of from the beginning of TV at Ali Pali till, well, I suppose I left the business in about 2008, really 2010 as an active participant. So it's been pretty much across the history of television in, in, in two careers. And I'm very proud to to be part of his
1: story. So you joined the BBC in 1971, during a time when the BBC went through a golden period of formidable television. Just give us a little insight into what it was like working in Bill Cotton's light entertainment department.
0: Well, Bill, Bill Cotton, uh, son of the band leader, Billy Cotton was, um, was head of Light Entertainment Group when I arrived at the BBC. He went on to be controller of BBC One and eventually managing director. When he retired, he was managing director of television. Um, And he was an extraordinary man. He was my mentor and my friend, taught me so much about this business, and eventually we went into business together with Nolgay TV, where he was chairman and I was managing director. So we had a long association. Um, It was extraordinary. The, the, The entertainment department, which included comedy in the 70s, was an extraordinary thing. And people used to say if you, if you worked in entertainment, in British entertainment, you worked for Bill Cotton at some point in your career. And I think it would be difficult to find any major name from the 70s and 80s that hadn't worked for Bill at some point. Uh, and he, he was just a lovely guy. He had the best sense of humor. He was completely supportive. He, he would take risks. He'd back you if you'd take risks. As long as you didn't, you know, as long as you let him know what was going on, he'd always back you up. It was an incredibly collegiate uh, place to be. Dick Fiddy was talking earlier about the camaraderie of the TV centre, and that's absolutely true. And the drama department under Sean Sutton and uh, current affairs and Panorama under Paul Fox and uh, and the entertainment department under Bill, entertainment and comedy, they were wonderful things to be. And uh, I went in as a runner, but within two years I joined the entertainment department as a first AD, you'd call them now, first assistant, and uh, became... Uh, director and then a producer um, and you felt you felt like you were, you were at top Gun academy when you when you went into the meetings. there was a monthly meeting of producers and you 'd sit around a table with Stuart Morris and Terry Hughes and Yvonne Littlewood and um, Dennis main Wilson and Graham Muir and michael mills i mean these were these are people who made British television and you were sitting in there in the room with them, and they were incredible. I always remember. I was a young producer, and I'd just done Three of a Kind, which was my first big solo show, really, that I'd kind of put together. And, and uh, they showed a little bit of it to the group. And Dennis Mayne Wilson turned around to him. And Dennis Mayne Wilson, you know, he produced The Goons, for God's sake, as well as Till Death and plenty of others. He said to me, that's very good, young Jackson. You know, that's going to be a hit. And, you know, that was an amazing thing to happen. And that happened because of Bill. And Bill was uh, much loved, much missed, uh, I'm glad he's not here now, actually, because he wouldn't be comfortable with what's, what's happened in our business in the last 10 years. It would have depressed him.
1: Perhaps your most celebrated post came when you became producer and then later director of The Two Ronnies. You famously said of Barker and Corbett that they were greater than the sum of the parts. Now, what did you mean by this? Well, just to be absolutely... Correct, Josh, the, um,
0: it goes the other way around. In the BBC, you become a director and then a producer. So, so I started directing the two runs. And, and in those days, you pretty well were director and producer. It was the same thing. In fact, real from the credit just said produced by. We didn't have separate director credits. And there's reasons for that, which I'll go into if you're interested. But um, I, so I got a lucky break. I, I actually worked on the two runnies at every level from runner, assistant floor manager, floor manager, vision mixer, director, producer, executive producer. I, would, I, did, I did the whole thing. I, I grew up with the two Runnies. I worked on all but the first two series uh, with them. Um, I think what you had with the two Runnies was two, two, two Runnies were two extraordinary performers. You had Ronnie Barker and Ronnie Corbett, obviously. Ronnie Barker was an actor, a uh, wonderful character actor, first made his name in things like The Navy Lark on BBC Radio. Um, and Ronnie Corbett was a variety hall, uh, stand-up comedian uh, Ronnie Barker also wrote quite a lot as as became revealed later on in the process, he didn't admit to that at first and as the two of them worked together so you had these two quite different skills, you know the skill of being a stand-up comedian is quite a different thing from sinking yourself into a part and becoming a character but if you watch the two Ronnies, and especially when you had the privilege of being as close as I was to them for a long time watching them in the rehearsal room and on location and in the studio, they kind of melded, and, and Ronnie Corbett became better and better as a character actor, and Ronnie Barker became more and more accomplished as a stand-up comedian, although he never did stand-up comedy. He'd always disguise it in his monologues in a kind of either a lecture or a presentation of some kind, but he was really doing stand-up comedy. And they both learned from each other. They both had immaculate timing. If you watch, you know, quite rightly, Four Candles is, is held up as, as a, a... you know. A, an iconic example of how good sketch comedy can be, and it was a lovely moment, if you haven't heard this story, when Ronnie Barker died he was given um, a a memorial service at Westminster Abbey, which is not given to many, and we're all very much hoping it's going to happen for Ronnie Corbett this year Uh, but he was given this memorial service and the cathedral was packed uh, the abbey was packed and um, as the uh, procession came up the aisle with the priest and the celebrant and so on the altar boys were all holding four candles instead of the normal two, the candles were all in things before which was just so touching uh, and got a round of applause actually in the in the in the abbey um but if you look at if you actually sit and watch uh the performance and it was written by Barker that sketch and Corbett plays the assistant behind the counter you watch his timing it's just that's the one you know just put that on the blackboard and let any young comic have a look at that because he gets every little laugh and then he'll do a double take and it's just immaculate. Um, Ronnie B, on the other hand, was full of the detail. I say I directed the shows. I very much directed them under his direction. He, he knew exactly what he wanted from all of those shows, and especially the big film serials that we did in the middle, which he normally wrote. Uh, I'd go to a big pre-meeting with him for a couple of days before we went out shooting, and he'd go through all the camera script with me. I mean, I did the camera script, but he would he would give me notes and amend it, and it was very welcome because they are the first big films. You know, you're shooting... A, 90 minute movie and those things uh, and his advice was very welcome and he'd come to the edits and so on Ronnie C wasn't interested in any of that Ronnie C went out and did the job but they were both lovely men Ronnie Barker signed my mortgage application because uh, I ended up marrying the makeup supervisor on that series and, and we sat in his caravan on filming in, in the valleys of Wales and he signed the mortgage application Ronnie Corbett became a close and dear friend um, I was just very very lucky Uh, But as a unit, I think, for all the great work that they both did individually, as the two Ronnies, they
1: were just better even than that. That's an amazing answer. Thank you. Notoriously, Ronnie Barker detested dressing as a woman and as a character actor, hated being himself. Now, as producer, how did you ensure that he was comfortable with his performance? Well, the interesting thing about working with the two Ronnies was it's difficult to say this, but
0: you kind of were working for them. Uh, I mean, in a more normal situation within a television production team, the producer and the director are kind of the team leaders, and they try to make everything work as best it can for people and give them the best environment and the best craft backup and so on to make things happen. Uh, but they kind of run the show. Now, the truth is, and they did it in an extraordinarily polite and, diplomatic and careful way. But the truth is, on the two Ronnies, and I suspect the same would have been true with Eric and Ernie, although I never worked with them above floor level, um, they were the bosses. They, you, know, you knew how the Ronnies wanted it to be, and your job was to make it like that. So there wasn't that much requirement on me to make sure that Ronnie B was happy, because he wouldn't have been doing it if he wasn't. Uh, he wrote probably something like 50%, 40 50% of the total material anyway, very often including him dressing up uh, as a woman. And I think his, his thing about being in drag, he didn't detest it. He, he, he hated the faddle of it, apart from anything else. He hated the time he had to spend in the makeup chair, as my wife, who was the makeup designer, will tell you. Um, and he hated the getting on of the costumes. And he sort of thought it was a bit weird, men dressing up in drag. And, for example, he never did Pantomime Dame, whereas Ronnie Corbett uh, was, a, was a classic and great Pantomime Dame. But he wouldn't have written the, the scripts where he was required to, to dress in drag if he wasn't happy to do it. Um, you're quite right about him being a character actor. You never saw the real Ronnie B on screen. I'm not sure we ever really even saw him in the rehearsal room. Yeah, you did. You could go out for dinner with him. I, because of the film directing, I used to go out on long reckeys with him before we went away on film, and he'd be very interesting in the back of a car and uh, or, or at dinner. We, we were driving around the countryside in, in Gloucestershire one day. Uh, this is a true story. we are driving along the back of a car on a wreck if we've been driven by the driver and he suddenly pointed out of the window and there was a five-bar gate and there was a hare sitting in the gate and as the car went past, the hare jumped out of the gate and he pointed at it and he said to me, hare in the gate, which I'm sure you know is a technical film term for, for when the uh, emulsion damages the film as it runs through the camera. Barker said that In this is an absolutely true story. We were travelling in a car, he saw the animal in the gate and he said it hair in the gate in time for me to look at it and see it and I remember after that I gave him a book of poems by Thomas Hardy because there was a there's a lovely Thomas Hardy poem uh, which the chorus line is he was a man who used to notice that such things and it was about a man who was a man of the country and a man of the earth and uh, and I just thought that of Barker so he did reel really himself um, but certainly from the minute he was in a rehearsal room or a studio, he, was, he had to be in character. He needed a character. So even when he sits at the news desk reading out news items, that's not Ronnie B. That's Ronnie B being a newsreader. Brilliant.
1: A well-documented tale in British Light Entertainment is when Bruce Forsyth swapped the BBC's Generation game for the ill-fated Bruce's Big Night on LWT. Now, luckily, you were on the other side of the story as producer of Larry Grayson's Generation game, which was riding high in the ratings. What was it like going up against Bruce, and how did you how did you maintain this success? Well,
0: again, so
1: just, just to get the facts
0: absolutely right, um, I was the director. Uh, a legendary figure called Alan Boyd was the producer at the time, and I worked with Alan. Alan produced and I directed those shows with Larry. I'd worked on the Gen Game uh, with Bruce uh, and Anthea and Isla as a floor assistant and a um, uh, AFM and so on. Um, and when Bruce defected to to uh, David Bell and London Weekend Television, it was a big blow for all of us. And then these stories started to emerge about, you know, Bruce's big night, he's going to slam the whole Saturday night schedule. And I've got to say the BBC were very worried because the BBC uh, Saturday night was incredibly important. You know, the, the Bill Cotton Saturday night that went roughly house party, generation game, um, two Ronnie's on Walking Wise or Mike Yard or something like that, match of the day, Parkinson. That was that was a fixture of um, family entertainment in, in the 1970s. Uh, and London Weekend set out to attack that. Um, and when we first heard about the big night, we thought, oh, my God, he's going to kill us. You know, I mean, they're going to throw everything at it, which they did. Now, with hindsight, it's, it's easy, isn't it? But I think, I think all of us, including Bruce, would say in hindsight, it's too much you can't do that long. You can't do three hours or three and a half hours, whatever it was. And of course he didn't, famously Cannon the Ball, uh, got a break on that show and eventually went on to do their own series, which I ended up producing. Um, There was a game show element in it. There was an interview element. So really it was normally three different shows put together as one big night. And I think the trouble with that proved to be that you can have too much of a good thing. You know, you might like to see Bruce... Uh, doing a game show you might like to see cannon and board but you don't want to see the whole thing all night and and there's too many attack points for the for the BBC to get to get the finger back in the hinge so you know even if it reduced the the viewing on the six o'clock kind of Noel Edmonds type slot you've got another crack at it with Jane game coming up at seven o'clock and you and unfortunately the chipping away in the different parts of the wall pretty quickly brought the wall down uh, and and the show didn't work. So uh, you can't do anything about that. You can't do anything about what the opposition's doing except be aware of it and, and, and try and schedule cleverly against it and try and put your your best shows either against it or not always. Maybe you put your best show just as it comes off air, try and get the audience back. What we did with Gen Game, there was a big hole obviously left by, by Bruce and indeed there was a feeling that... that um, at the BBC at the time, that I think Jim Moyer would have been in charge at the time, taking Bill Cotton's job, and Bill would have been running BBC One. I think at that time, um, there was a feeling that maybe we shouldn't do any more Jane Game, and it was Alan Boyd who who came up with uh, uh, with Larry and Isla. Of course, I said earlier Isla worked with Bruce, she didn't. She work with Larry. Um, it was it was Alan who came up with this idea, and you couldn't really think of anything more counterintuitive. I mean. Uh, Larry is not Bruce in any form. And yet, he was a lovely man, Larry. He really was a lovely, quiet, gentle man to be around. Just never made a fuss, just did it. Immaculate, rarely had to do second takes. Uh, I loved working with him. Um, and Alan's instinct was right. He turned out to be um, a marvellous appointment. The, the, lovely, the, the, the older part of the audience loved Larry. When we used to go out, we, you know, we used to get him. Bournemouth and Yarmouth and places like that to do They just absolutely adored him, and he was so charming, always with them. He was a lovely, lovely man. Uh, but it was a, it was the inspiration of Alan and possibly others. I don't know uh, to put him in there. And then you just carry on doing the show as best you can, and you you play to Larry's strengths, which were, you No, know, Larry wasn't great at doing the big drama at the end, as Bruce, had been, Bruce would come in and read the lines, Larry would stand at the side worrying and fluffing, but you played it to their strengths, we changed the games around a bit, Bit games that Larry would shine at, rather than what Bruce had been good at.
1: <coughs> Mind you, it's also a bloody good show, isn't it? So, you know, we had a good start. In terms of the history of Light Entertainment, you are unique in how you managed to straddle two eras of comedy, working with the likes of Corbett and Barker, but also Ben Elton, Rick Mayall and Ade Edmondson, on The Young Ones. How different were these two generations to work with? Did you witness a gradual transition between the two, or was it not that clear-cut? Well, I was very lucky
0: because I'd I just managed to get to a senior position within the entertainment department in time to do shows like Blankety Blank and Jane Game and Top of the Pops, and most particularly the two Ronnies, uh, as a producer and director. So I'd worked on those shows, but only for a couple of years when... This alternative comedy thing came to my attention, uh, largely because the comedy store opened in in Soho. And I didn't go to the first night, sadly, uh, but I know a lot of people who did. And uh, I went to the second or third night um, and got to meet these guys. And the funny thing about it was the comedy store originally was in the Nell Gwynn Strip Club, which was on a little alley just off Wardour Street, just opposite where the Groucho is now. And just up from where the Groucho is now used to be the Marquee Club, the legendary Marquee Club, where... In the 60s, bands had played, uh, the great bands of the era had played, and I used to go every Monday night, and it was either Manfred Mann or Georgie Fame or uh, Moody Blues, I think, played there occasionally. So I just remember going there that first night and thinking, you know what, this is like, what would it have been 20 years earlier, 10 years earlier, going to the marquee and seeing these bands who you knew were going to be special. I was watching people, and I thought, you know, these guys are going to do something. I don't know how big they're going to be, but they're going to be something. Uh, And that, in a way, kind of made me more enthusiastic, kind of convinced me that I'd seen something worth seeing. And so I went back to the Beeman because of the patience and foresight of a man called Robin Nash, um, who was my boss at the time as head of variety. He let me let me do a pilot with these guys. And that led on to the young ones. So I was in this strange position and also three of a kind started about the same time. So I was working with the three of a kind lot who really were a bridge I mean Lenny particularly was an old variety act he'd fronted the black and white minstrel show for a long time unbelievably Uh, and now he was doing three of a kind which is a much more cutting edge much newer kind of comedy but Saturday night and then the young ones on BBC two in midweek Monday night Um, and yet I was still also directing the two Ronnies producing the two Ronnies so it was a fascinating time and they were both I think the big thing to remember with the with the so-called alternative comics, they were massive fans of all that history. So, you know, Hancock and Peter Cook and Dave Allen and Cook and Moore and the two Ronnies and Morkham Mice, they were heroes to the to the young ones. Um it was this sort of perception there was a battle. There was no battle at all. They had they had a, a youthful ennui, a youthful boredom with the kind of dinner-jacketed nightclub set, the kind of you know. Let's play around the golf in the morning. And isn't your mother and all fat? They didn't. They thought that was lazy. They a sort of political objection to it. They just thought it was lazy, and they wanted to do a new kind of comedy and new kinds of jokes. But famously, uh, the the year whatever the year of the first Young Ones was eighty three, whatever it was. Uh, Bill Cotton used to have a huge light entertainment department Christmas party every year, and it was a legendary party. Everybody who was anybody in entertainment went to this party. Uh, and of course, after we'd done the first season of the Young Ones, the Young Ones were invited and they were just so, what do you mean? The going to be there. Mike Youngwood's going to be there and Dave Allen's going to be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, some of the bosses at the B were saying to me, they're not going to get pissed, are they? they not going to cause a scene, are they? Uh, and it was, it, you know, it was a wonderful night. They came, they we're in awe. I remember Ben meeting and me introducing Ben to, to the two runnies who happened to be standing together. And he was just in awe. I mean, he just I couldn't believe it. He was only a year out of university. And then it was a fabulous night. It get a little bit raucous towards the end and we did a little bit of shepherding out of the of the door with, with one of the party uh, with his penis hanging out of his trousers um, as a little joke that he, not many people had spotted, actually, but we managed to get him out the door before they did. So... Uh, they were, very, they were very different, but most importantly, everything I'd learnt on the two Ronnies, all the skills, all the tricks, because Young Ones was a difficult show to produce in days before CGI and digital techniques. Doing some of those tricks that we did in the Young Ones were very difficult to achieve, and not only did I use every ounce of what the Ronnies had taught me, but I used every department in the BBC, departments which sadly no longer exist, like in-house visual effects and makeup and wardrobe and design and so on to get the effects that the young ones had written in their script. And we couldn't have made that show anywhere else in the country at the time. You you needed the massive resource of the old BBC to make that show work. But they were just as disciplined as the Ronnies. They turned up, they worked hard. You had the writer in the room just the same way as you had with the Ronnies. Uh, You don't get to be as good as both those groups of people
1: are without you dedicate yourself you've recently fronted a BBC Radio 4 Extra series entitled The Comedy Controllers, which celebrated the many landmarks in British comedy. When researching for this, what were the aspects of the story which surprised you most? Well, it was a fun
0: time. We've just done four three-hour shows, although we we only chatted for about an hour and a half of that, and then there's episodes of the the shows slotted into that. Um, And it turned out to be a lot more work than I thought it was going to be because of course the the idea of the show is to go back to the 40s and then come right through to uh, 2016 it was uh, the idea was triggered by the Radio Times poll of best comedies of the century which was run by Mrs Brown Um, and to look at comedy across that whole period mainly on radio but also on television Uh, and of course when you start to do it you immediately hit this wall of material and because we're working in radio, we have a slightly easier job than Dick and Dick Piddy and his colleagues doing television. As actually, the radio archive is very, very extensive, um, although a lot of that was burnt, of course, uh, was wiped over. But um, I think the thing that I really – two things I think interested me. Uh, one was quite – Bill Cotton always used to say to us, if you're stuck for a new idea, look back at the schedule, look 10 years back, look 20 years back, because there's nothing new under the sun. And if you think once Blind Date finished, there was no dating show for a long time until Take Me Out came on, because we want dating shows. Maybe one or two is all we need, but we want dating shows. There was no talent show between New Faces and, and Pop Idol X Factor. Because they fell into, you know, people thought, I've seen that, it's old-fashioned. And then somebody comes, somebody comes up with a new version, and we do want them. We want talent shows. We don't want any more right now, we should take them all off, because they're all getting very boring. But we want five, six years off, and then somebody has to find a different way to do a talent show. So I I discovered that. And one of the things that really made me laugh, really, was was an old radio show called Ignorance is Bliss, which I remember as a kid. I didn't remember it when I saw the title. And it's a panel show. But when you listen to it, and there's only one episode left, it's clearly a completely scripted panel show. I mean, tightly scripted, like a sitcom. And, of course, talking to Jimmy Marvel and John Lloyd and people uh, about that, we, we, to a certain extent, script our shows now, whether it's Clue or Have I Got News or What The Week or whatever there's an element of pre-design goes into those shows. So I was very interested to hear uh, the, the quiz format used as a comedic vehicle in a scripted way as long ago as the 1940s. Um, I think the second thing that struck me was there seemed to be a very clear divide, and the people doing the show with me were Jimmy Marvel, John Lloyd, and Beryl Virtue, and Beryl and I certainly have been actually listened to these comedies in the 50s as, as uh, young kids listening at home. There seemed to be a very clear divide between the war generation, Itmar and Ignorance is Bliss, and those kind of shows, um, uh, Daniel Way and uh, High Gang, with uh, Ben Lyon and B.B. Daniels and people, and Arthur Askey and Vic Oliver. Those sounded old-fashioned. When we listened to them, you didn't laugh too much at many, many of them. They, they maybe had a wartime feel about them, but those people who entertained the nation so crucially and so importantly during the war years... Seem to have a certain historicity about them. Whereas as quickly as 51, these shows were running into 48, 49, 51, 52, when the goons come along uh, and Hancock and, and various others, suddenly you start to laugh again. So that that break from what seemed to me to be people who entertained during the war and people who fought in the war and then came back and demobbed and became entertainers, like Milligan, Sellers, and, and, and Seekham, most famously, um, That seemed to be a break. And I think the third and last thing that I was fascinated with was just how funny. I mean, Jimmy and uh, the four of us were sitting on the stage laughing out loud at Rumbling Sid Rumpole and at at the um, Uxbridge English Dictionary round of uh, of Clue, uh, On the Hour, um, Down the Line, just laughing out loud. And one of my memories from childhood was the Bob Newhart album, The Button Down Mind of Bob Newhart that came out in... 1960, and actually the only time for a spoken language record won the Grammy of the year, record of the year, album of the year, for a spoken uh, comedic album. Um, playing that again, it just made me laugh out loud again, and I was so thrilled with that that it's still funny. You know, Bob Newhart's a funny man now, yesterday, tomorrow,
1: and forever. Finally, what's next for Paul Jackson?
0: Well, I'm retired. I'm a very old man now, Josh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm putting up my clogs, really. But um, I got a phone call uh, last year asking me would I be interested in, in working on Benidorm, the ITV comedy drama, which I commissioned as a half-hour sitcom 10 years ago, 11 years ago, when I was at ITV. And uh, I've always liked the show and I've stayed friendly with the, uh, the people involved in it, particularly the writer, Darren Lytton, uh, who's a very, very clever writer. And, of course, it was originally produced by my dear friend and colleague, Jeffrey Perkins, the late Jeffrey Perkins. So I've got a lot of affection for the show, and uh, I said, yeah, I'd love to. So we're just, I've got a big read-through tomorrow and Thursday of um, uh, the first block of episodes for the new season. We're just about to head down to Spain again in the spring and shoot nine more of those, and, you know, hopefully more after that. And I'd certainly keep doing that as long as they or ITV ask us to do them. I did work with Matt Lucas last year, who's another comedian I'm very fond of and enjoyed that a lot. Let's see if anything comes of that. But um, largely, largely, I uh, uh, wander down, have a pint, come back and watch some telly,
1: watch the rugby. I'm off to Cardiff at the weekend. That's fantastic, Paul. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much to our guest for being the subject of another Beyond the Title interview. If you like this, why not browse the website and see if there's anything else that takes your fancy. Don't forget to like our Facebook page to receive updates on forthcoming interviews and to see more information about me and what I do. Thanks again and hopefully see you next time for another Beyond the Title interview.